Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. guest today is Sebo Velapazi and he was on my program in August so it's just so good to have him back again. Sabona Sebo. Evo Sabona Su. Injani. Good, I'm pleased you're well. I'm also well, thank you. Your Zulu is improving, I have to say. Yeah, are you kidding? I did it especially. I've been trying. (laughs) You know, that song that we had was so appropriate for our program today. Our program is called A Lived Experience. And um, that, that song that they've just sung... Uh, is with uh, the let the rain wash away your tears. I would like to dedicate this program to my dearest cousin, a soul sister of mine, Diane Dresner Nee Webster, who passed away last night. Uh, she died peacefully um, at, after a short illness, but she brought so much. She she taught us all in our family and her family courage, joy laughter, beauty, love and loyalty, and also unbelievable acceptance of all people. She she loved all people. It was the most amazing thing to actually re- recognize. And she filled ro- the, all the many, many roles that she took on. And she will certainly be missed. Then Leah Kohanovitz, who also left our world yesterday, she was a good few decades older than me and became a friend of mine and I learned so much from her. And um, she was a woman of strength and courage. And she taught me what it was that to, to get old, to lose all your friends along the way, but to still find joy in other things. The joy that she found were in her family and her grandchildren. She loved them all. I, our community also was rocked very badly by, by two tragic deaths yesterday. And I would just like to say that I send all the families who are bereaved, I send them blessings and may all their loved ones' lives always be a blessing to all of us. Now, Sebo is a director of the Valley Trust, which is an NGO in, uh, in the Valley of the Thousand Hills behind Buertas Hill. He's an author and he's a man of many, many talents. Um, his aim with this Valley Trust, one of the aims is Grow Well Child. And our last um, time that we had together, I had to cancel in between uh, after that, but was uh, after the riots and the devastation and how he was moving on from there. Now, Sebo, um, you are looking very good today. How are you? Just tell me. I mean, you said to me in Zulu that you're okay, but tell me what how this time is treating you. Thank you so much, Sue. Let me start off by conveying my deepest condolences to you for the personal losses 
that you've suffered that you were talking about at the start of the program. Thank I you so much. Pray for comfort and healing and strength for you. Thank you, Sebo. Thank you for your introduction. I'm doing well. Thank you so much. We proceeded with that study that we that we referred to, which is an, a follow-up to to the riots to see to gain community perspectives on it, and more importantly, work out how communities can avoid self, such self-destructive behavior. We've done focus groups and key informant interviews up to now. We were hoping to do community dialogues. We should have been doing them as we speak, you and I. However, with local government elections coming up, the situation is a bit tense, and we are just being careful that we don't find ourselves mixed, you know, being mis- uh, mistaken for a political meeting or something along those lines, or being misconstrued in our goal. So we've put it on hold for a little bit. We are busy with transcription and translation, but we'll continue after the elections in, in November. So I'm, I'm well, just keep safe because it is a volatile situation still, very definitely. Now, what Seba and I were going to talk about today, and it, it fits in very well with the, with all the programs, even the loss of safety that, and the loss right now of knowing how to move forward because you can't right now. Uh, you have to, your hands are pretty tired as we're waiting for the elections. But we're going to be talking about the many different experiences of life and how they shape us. And how what we do with them actually forms our character. Now, Sebo, what age were you when you lost your father? I was 12, going on 13. And what was your relationship with your dad? I had a a very close relationship with my father. I was an only son with five siblings. In fact, there were six, up, uh, there were four, right up until the time just before he died. When my father passed away, my youngest sister was maybe four or five months old. So for the longest time, I was, it was just myself and four siblings. And we were outnumbered as the males in the house. My father was a traditional Swazi male, but he, he was born in, in KZN in Zulu Natal, so really Zulu men. And it was very important to him that he had a son. So him and I spent a lot of time together and had a very close and a very good relationship. So what does your actual name mean? My name, my full name is Smolisani. And it's in it's, it's a Nguni name. And it means rejoice with us. And it's relevant for, for our chat now because I was named by my grandmother who, so my father had had all these girls before me and my grandmother had been worried that there'd be no one to continue the family name. So when I came out and it was a boy, my grandmother helped me up in joy and said, yes, rejoice with us. We finally found a beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. Now, so of what you and I have discussed, the role of a father in the different communities in our country, and so often they are absent fathers. You're saying that your dad was a traditional father. In what way was he a traditional father? 
Oh, in just he was he was loving, definitely very loving. But I mean, I remember so when he passed away, the year that he that he passed was my first year of high school. So I just left primary school and it started boarding school. So when I came back home for holidays after that first t- uh, term in boarding school, my sisters had to vacate some of the couches, the, the favorite couches in the in the, in the house for the. The sun, you know, I had to sit in the choice place to get a good view of TV and of the TV and to get it for him to get a good view of me. So in, 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 in that regard, and also he was very much into farming. So him and I would go far and wide really looking for good breeds of dogs and, and, and cattle and sheep and, uh, and everything else. And so, just in the sense that you are steeped in what many rural uh, communities or cultures consider uh, a mark of your of, of your manhood and of your stature, he really went after those kinds of things. Fantastic, right? It's, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human show. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on one hundred one point nine High FM. We're now going to go to a very short YouTube. But before we do, I just want to say the reason why I've chosen this is because Seba will also talk to us about how the impact of his dad's loss and how he began to understand it. This particular YouTube is short and it's about four things we must realize about happiness. It is from Oprah Winfrey's show. We're not very good at understanding happiness as human beings. Like, yeah. We, I think we think of, or I thought of happiness as the big stuff. It's not the big stuff. Joy is the small stuff. So those moments of joy do not need to be some big event, and they're usually not. My coffee tasted great. This tea is actually delicious. <laughs> One of my kids gave me a hug without being asked. Maybe hinted at, but not outright asked. These tiny little moments are the moments that make our lives. There's only weakness to be had. Only weakness to be had and waiting and waiting for external circumstances to alter and waiting to win the lottery and waiting for times to get better and waiting for something to change at your job. It is the weakest position you can stand in. And my strength of self-accountability brings me a higher level of joy than anything else in the world. I'm in charge of this person. Whatever happens out there is none of my business. I'm in charge of this soul that was given to me to take care of, and I accept 100% accountability for this soul. Most people believe that if they work hard, they'll be successful and happiness will follow. And you say that model is now broken. It's, it's broken, and it's, it's, it's scientifically broken for two reasons. The first reason is that because success is a moving target, even if you hit success, you immediately change what success looks like for you. So. When we tell our kids that, oh, once you do this, you'll be happy. Once you get into this school, you'll be happy. Or once you lose this weight, you'll be happy. All these types of things make us think it's going to happen, and then it doesn't. It keeps getting pushed off for the future. Yeah. I interviewed a man who told me my whole life, I never got too excited, too joyful about anything. I just kind of stayed right in the middle. That way, if things didn't work out, I wasn't devastated. And if they did work out, it was a pleasant surprise. Oh, my goodness. He's, and so many people said, he said, in his 60s, he was in a car accident. His wife of 40 years was killed. Uh-huh. Wow. And he said, 
second I realized that she was gone, the first thing I thought was, I should have leaned harder into those moments of joy because mm. that did not protect me from what I feel right now. We're trying to, we're trying to dress rehearse tragedy so we yes. can beat vulnerability to the punch. Yes, 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 yes. So you want, so you know what happens? This is what the joyful people do. This is what I learned from them. In those moments where like they're looking at their children or their partner or something great, they get that shudder too. But you know what they do? They don't say, oh, there's that shudder of terror about feeling joyful. I'm going to dress rehearse tragedy. They say, I'm going to practice gratitude. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with uh, Sebo Bilakazi. And if you'd like to contact us, you can on 34 SMS 34519 or Telegram 061-895-1019. Sebo, did that short YouTube, did it mean anything to you? It meant a lot, Sue. I love how it started off by uh, speaking about the fact that joy comes from the little things. And it's important to do that because if you consider some of the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in as, as people, it, often it's the little things or often the big picture might seem broken. We've lost a job, we've lost a loved one. Or, or whatever big traumatic event has happened. And in those moments, the things that will sustain us very often is an appreciation of the little things. Wow, I, I woke up and, and I can draw breath this morning. Wow, I can smell the beautiful morning or whatever, whatever it is. The lady on the, on the clip speaks about enjoying the taste of coffee or appreciating the taste, the taste of coffee. So I, I, I like that. I also like the fact that we have a responsibility for this moment. For you know, I can't change the, the ex, many of the external things around me, but I certainly can change how I respond to them. And Victor Frankl puts this very well when he says it's our uh, the last of the of the of the human freedoms to choose one's way, to choose how you respond to any external. Stimulus. So I, I, I found it helpful in those. Now, funny enough, Thomas Merton said, "This day will never come again." Mm. So it is challenging us to actually live this day. Now, going back to your dad. So you obviously, after he passed away, what were the traditions in your family? Probably as a son, they were different to what the women had to do. I'm not sure. I wouldn't say so. I don't have a clear recollection, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I think that just what is good about uh, the Southern African uh, black culture, uh, Onguni culture as, um, as I know it, is this sharing of grief, this coming together of many members of the family. So usually the burial doesn't take place immediately. It'll be Usually about it, it's usually the, the, the next weekend, but sometimes if, if a person passes away, like on a Thursday or a Friday, it could, could be the next weekend after the immediate um, weekend following. What that does is usually the, the practical reason is to give people time to travel. If many people work far away and they have to 
sick leave and those kinds of things. But the other thing that it does is in the interim, there are people that come in, neighbors, friends, relatives come in and some of them spend days in the home. Some relocate and live with you. And that is such a, a helpful and therapeutic exercise within the, within the culture because firstly, it makes the grief bearable. Just the fact that you're not bearing it alone. Secondly, you've got people here that can help you make, process it and make sense of it. There isn't much of a, 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 there were no psychologists back in the day, one-on-one counselors in, 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 in the African culture, as I understand it. But this group counseling, so to speak, and just the fact that you you were not you you knew that you didn't have to face it all along uh, all alone was was helpful. So for me, what was good was I, I, I had a lot of people that I could turn to. I had uncles and aunts, and all of whom are, are very nice to you, especially as a child at that time. So it makes the grieving process, at least that immediate shock of it, uh, sit smoother than what it could have. It sounds, it, it, that sounds like it's very much community based. Funny enough, in Judaism, well, first of all, we bury by that same night before, mm-hmm. you know, by, by the, the night of the, of the loss, if possible. But then there is, um, a seven days of, of mourning and grief where people come in, they, they bring food. You know, you're not cooking or, or doing anything like that. And also you're sitting um, on low chairs. Um, there are a lot of rituals that come with it, with the grief, which almost give you, um, a, um, what would I say, boundaries to work within so that you're not just left there floundering. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying, that you know that by, uh, probably a weekend later this is going to happen. But in the meantime, you are being held Mm-hmm. And you are being allowed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. After that time, did you then go back to to boarding school? I did, and that's when that was the beginning of it of a of a tough period for me, because my the loss of my father hit me very hard. Let me let me just put it like that. I didn't lose a father. I lost a friend. I lost a. a, a I lost an ally at home. I see now how my son will say, no, 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 this is for the boys when he's, you know, when he's talking to his sister or wanting to keep something from his sister. And I think it was like that for me as well. That at least I had another male. We had that bond going. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty that I faced also was that I was at an all boys boarding school. And those guys seemed to talk about nothing else but what they did with their fathers back home. And I didn't have any, any stories to tell except the old stories that are told many times before. And so it was not until maybe six or seven years later. And even then, simply because I just read so much, I buried myself in, in, in reading, I read fiction, I read all sorts of, of books. But one of my favorites, materials to read was Reader's Digest, and they had a lot of these kind of um, personal life experiences, analyses of, of, of personal life experiences. And in, in reading those and other, other, other publications, I got to understand that 
I actually was full of grief for my father, and I and maybe even anger. I realized that I'd become quite obnoxious to my family. I would snap. I, you know, I, I developed a short a short temper, and when, once I started to understand that this was grounded to a large extent on the loss of my father, it was when the impact of how I was treating my family hit me. Firstly, uh, they needed me to be with them. They needed me to be one with them, and there was pushing them away. More, more than that, I needed them for my own well-being. But I remember the the other really big shock realization, the other big deep insight that I got then was I was 12 years old when my father passed on. I had had 12 years with him of joy and happiness with him. My youngest sister was only months old, three or four months old. She hadn't even had that privilege. And I just felt how heartless is it of me to now look at myself as the principal mourner in a, in a sense, so to take out my grief uh, out on them, and especially on, or particularly on her, when she had never even had that experience, that blessing that I'd had. And I have to say that changed my outlook and helped me start the process of healing. And it was from, from there, I could remember my father with, with joy and with peace. Whereas before, it was always with a sense of hurt, and I would even break down and you know into tears uh, sometimes. So it's so honest to tell you the truth, Sebo. Those feelings, and especially thinking of a young boy of twelve who so needs um, a father figure in their lives to uh, to bring safety in. And a bit later, we will be talking about absent fathers and who choose to be absent. And here your father chose to be so much part of your life. But I can't help thinking that, you know, last time we spoke about the seeds that are sown. And part of what I'm hearing you saying, reading the Reader's Digests, the words have always meant so much to you. Now, you and I have built up a very good uh, friendship through the months and which I really do cherish. And you send me the most beautiful work that you have written and I wonder if it didn't stem from that, that words began to mean more and more to you and you could begin to write these feelings I have come to realize that uh, that period was very much formative for me, very significant to my uh, my time of writing now, you remember one of our early chats I, I said to you that for a, for a while after writing my book, I considered myself an accidental author. Yes. And then it hit me that there was nothing accidental about it at all. I, I just took a long time to realize it, but I was always going to write. I, I didn't have a choice, really. Just words had always been a part of, 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 of my life from, from, from an early age and had had held significance for me from an early age. And it was only a matter of time before I began using words to express myself and maybe share them with others. Do you, does anyone else in your family have that ability to actually write words like you do? You know, in, in my family, we actually are all really good at writing. Oh. My, my sister, who's older than me, so I'm, I'm, I'm second to, the second point to her, 
She is very, she's a very good technical writer. So she's worked for international nonprofits, but she devises programs. She, she writes evaluation reports. She's, she's, she's excellent. I have one of my younger sisters is a, uh, was a project manager for a long time for a uh, firm that delivers learnerships. So she also wrote these amazing reports. So we do have the gift of writing. In my, in my family, I would say we don't necessarily express it creatively. I'm probably the first to have delved into, into, into the creative. We've all been very technical. My sisters, funny enough, are very left brain, very much like me. And, um, I've, I'm about as right brain as you can get in my family. I'm the one that's explored that side of my brain a little, a little bit more. But we're all really gifted in writing, I would say. Well, I would definitely say so. And your and your words have a have a very strong impact, very very much so. Tell me about your one sister, because you wrote the most beautiful one, which I did read a bit last time uh, on air. Um, that she does the walk. Just tell me about her, because you lost her as well. She was thirty two years old. Would you mind just telling me a little bit about about your sister? Yeah, so Zanele was her name. Zanele means enough, by the way. It means win. And the full name is Zanele is in Dombi, which means enough girls. And, oh. and, not, and really more in kind of celebration and thankfulness. We've been gifted all these beautiful girls. And um, So what number was she in the family? So she was number six. Okay. So she's the one who wasn't, who was only a toddler when my, you know, she wasn't. Oh, gosh. When my, she never knew my father, um, our, our father, let me, let me put it like that. She was still too young when he, when he passed on. And her and I went on to develop a really close relationship. I'm, I'm, I'm close with, with all my sisters. And what I have found is that interestingly, I have a, there's a relationship, there's a common relationship amongst all five of us now, uh, all six of us then. But with each one, there, w- there would be something special that I'd share. And with Zanele, we had a, a similar love for music, for the creative. So she was much more creatively expressive, actually, than I. She sang from a young age. She's, she acted in school plays. She did, she studied, studied drama at, at, at university and ended up singing in a band. Mm-hmm. So her and I always had that, uh, connection, that love for creative, creativity, particularly as expressed in words. And, um, we're going to get back to that in a shortly, uh, Sebo, because I want to go on with you about your relationship with her. This is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. This is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. Once again, we've got a very short uh, YouTube, What is Dignity? by Rosalind Wiseman. We all want a world where everyone is treated with respect, but sometimes it seems in pretty short supply. And the notion of giving respect is often a flashpoint between young people and adults. We've probably all experienced moments of frustration when we feel we deserve respect and have not been given it, or been told to show respect to someone we don't actually respect because of how they behave. Could our interpretation of respect be the problem? 
Respect comes from the Latin respectus, which means looking back at with admiration. Respect is earned through actions we admire, not just because of someone's position. Young people are often forced to show respect to people they feel haven't earned it, specifically because they treat people badly, while adults feel it should be given no matter what. How do we bridge this gap? The answer is dignity, from the Latin dignitas, meaning to be worthy. While respect is earned, dignity is a given. It is an absolute. We all have the same worth, whatever our age, social status, or accomplishments. When we remember this, there's no conflict in treating someone with their rightful human dignity, even when you don't agree with their actions. Young people are living in a storm of disrespect. By recognizing that everyone has inherent dignity, we can unlock the door to more positive communication and equitable relationships. Dignity gives us calm in the storm of disrespect. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Sebo Bilakazi. And that pro, that particular um, YouTube was actually was going to be when we were talking about violence on women. But by the sounds of it, your sister had her own form of dignity. And a message came through just now while we were uh, listening to the adverts. And it said, my sister died and I have such grief and guilt. And I feel that I've got to save my parents from further pain. Mm-hmm. What you were, how did you feel when your sister died? Did you feel guilt? Did you feel that you needed to save the family from the pain? I felt for my mom. I, I felt very strongly for my mother. And my thing at the time was to reach out to my family as often as I could. So I already lived in Durban. I've always been the only one that lived in Durban. The rest of my family are either in Johannesburg or Swaziland, Eswatini. And my sister was in Johannesburg. But of course, I had two or three other sisters there. Now, I would call them as, as often as I could, and we would chat about about Zanele. But I have to say that the person that I grieved the most for was, was my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to lose a child in the first place, but to lose your youngest child, um, uh, it, it just seems to me like such a heavy, heavy burden mm-hmm. on her. Amazingly, though, that was where I received the biggest lesson maybe about grief and the biggest surprise for me because not long thereafter, a few short months, was within the first six months of my sister's passing, I went to Swaziland to see my mom. And she said to me, you know, Smo, I have such a peace about Zanella's passing. And her thing was, she told me that she felt, she got to a point where she felt that grief was literally going to tear her to pieces because that's how, that's how uh, much it ripped her apart. And she just prayed to so my mother as a prayerful woman. And she just prayed to God to take the, to take the pain away. And she says, miraculously, at some point, it almost seemed overnight, but she just woke up and all she had was a peace and, and, and appreciation for Zanella's life. And that grief, the pain, the tears that she felt whenever she thought about her were gone. Now, did, did that Zanelli, is 
Sorry, sir. Did, did Zanelli die very suddenly, or was it a slower death, or was it a sudden death? It, it was, um, she was ill. And the thing is, she, she had been ill for a bit, and there was a time that it looked like she was going to pass away, but she didn't. Oh. And, and just at the time that she looked to be getting back to her 100% good health, that's when she passed. So, Shock in was way, it, yeah, it was, it was kind of sudden then in that regard. Mm-hmm. And for you, um, did it bring up other lo- your loss for your dad again? Did you have to relook at at your own life? Definitely, definitely. Uh, after my father's uh, passing, after my father's death, I'm probably the person that attends the least funerals in the world. Uh, I just don't. I, I just avoid funerals for and it's since my dad. And, you know, the one thing also that it did for me, that my father's passing did, was it gave me an anxiety around New Year's Day. Whenever we were celebrating the start of a new year, I always would think, you know what, when 1980 came about, I didn't, but the New Year's Day in 1980, I didn't know that by the end of the year my father would have passed. So each time a year turned, I would be, who's passing this year, or what grief is coming this you know this year so that that took a while for me to work work through and i did eventually but when zanele passed it kind of said to me you didn't know when 2012 came that this was going to come Mm -hmm. and that was that grief for my sister the grief for my dad and just the general um pervasiveness of 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 gloom I, i i feel Almost a sense of foreboding. And I can understand that, you know, we've just had our Jewish New Year and you, you pray for, for a year of peace and health and, and life. And, and a lot, I think a lot of people do sort of wonder, are we going to get through this year? Who's going to get through the year? You know, there is that fear. So if you have lost someone like you did, especially at such a young age, that fear definitely stays. You've got to work with it all the time. Yeah. It, it took a while for me. It got where I eventually forgot about it. And I think this is after that whole process of coming to more appreciate the time that I'd had with my dad and get, have more empathy for my family. But certainly when my sister passed away, it um, knocked me back a few years. And I needed to work through that again. I'm sure. Um, okay, it's Sue Jackson on Finding Human. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Sebo Vilakazi. And once again, we're actually being told that it's almost the end of the program. But we have not even touched on female violence, women, I mean gender violence, the terrible violence against women, against children. I think we're coming up soon to the the week of violence or the month, aren't we? We are in, in November. In November. So we're probably going to need to do a program then about it. But I just want to say that Sebo actually wrote this beautiful story about, how do you pronounce it, Indluvakazi? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 
And it's the name of the mother elephant, the queen in the African jungle. She reigns supreme. She rules in the forest and in the savannah, strutting her stuff. She's a true African, the Africa, Africana. And then he goes on to say, any wonder then that among the Nguni people of South, of the South, way beyond the Zambezi river mouth, where the elephant's poise is praised and revered, hailed, adored, saluted, and feared. Their queen has the name of their four-legged cousin. She too is called Inglobuza Kazi. So why would mere males want to abuse her? Who in his right mind would seek to reduce her? Foolish man, gender-based violence will lead to your downfall. You'll be hung at dawn in front of the town hall. Your cruel deeds against her royal highness will not go unpunished, and nor will your slyness. Sing loud her praises, all you gifted voices. Sing a happy song of one who rejoices. To strike a queen is to strike a rock. And then what do you say? You strike a woman, you strike a rock. And on that note, Sebo, we probably have to wait until November to pick up on that. But I think we need to really understand that we do have a, a, a short YouTube by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on victim mental. Something bad happens. There are two responses. Number one, we can complain. Number two, we can do something about it. Now, if we simply complain, if we see ourselves as victims, the truth is that there's good news for being a victim. Everyone has compassion for you. Everyone has Rahmanas for you. It's comfortable being a victim. The only trouble with being a victim is that you, by defining yourself as such, have put yourself out of any possible way of improving your situation. Because if it isn't your fault, you can't put it right. Somebody else has to. And you thereby hand over your life to somebody else. The Jewish way is to say, if I see something wrong in the world, let me be one of the first to put it right. That is responsibility. And that literally is what responsibility means. God is calling to us. As he called to the first human being in the Garden of Eden, Ayeka, where are you? Help me put out the fire. And that is the Jewish way, not to see ourselves as victims, even though we have been victims, but to see ourselves as responsible agents who, working together in conjunction with one another and with that little voice from heaven, can change the world. That is the only way to be.